Welcome back to the show. We have Freddie Silva in the house, or not quite in the house, but across the pond. Freddie Silva's a guy that I got turned on to from all of his amazing content on Gaia TV. He has covered tons of different topics, and I think he's written eight books now, so I'm not, not quite sure on that. Uh, I'm definitely starting the deeper dive into his work and have been really watching a lot of his stuff on Gaia, and it's, it's really fascinating. We cover so much ground on this podcast. We really talk about ancient civilizations and cultures as well as um, sacred sites and places where people would use for transcendent and altered states of consciousness. So rites of passage, things of that nature. Of course, many of you heard me talk about this, these, uh, these topics on this podcast before, but never in this way. This is a first. Uh, I'm, I was really pumped to get Freddie. Uh, he's, he's a guy that I really want to dive into deeply and, and learn more from. And his wealth of knowledge from ancient civilizations to the people that we know about, you know, like the, the Knights Templar, like what they were really about. And of course, he's written books on that and he has books that are right around the corner, just about to release. So if you love this episode, check out his website, which we link to in the show notes. And of course, just punch in his name on Gaia TV and you will find tons of videos, some an hour, an hour and a half, full-blown documentaries. Sometimes he's featured as a guest on some of my other favorite shows like Beyond Belief with George Norrie. And of course, just just fantastic. Every single piece of media that I've chewed on from Freddie Silva has been mind-blowing to say the least. Um, also, check out our sponsors. This is one of the ways that the show stays afloat. We are brought to you today by Biome Health, the company co-founded by the renowned scientist who named the microbiome, Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum has created an online interactive gut assessment tool based on nearly five years of collected microbiome data, one of the largest comprehensive microbiome data sets in the world. Consumers can log on to guttesting.com to answer a short series of demographic, health, lifestyle, and diet questions. Once they've completed the questions, which takes about two minutes, I did it, it was awesome, said I have a phenomenal gut, no, no bullshit there. They will be given insights regarding the likelihood of their gut being imbalanced, their associated gut score, and whether they are more likely to have higher levels of candida compared to levels normally found in the gut. Now, this is an important one. You know, I, I think Mahmoud even wrote his thesis on candida 40 years ago. Um, both Mahmoud and his son Afif have been guests on this podcast before, and they will be guests here in the near future. I think coming up in about a month, I'm going to record with them. And these guys are just absolutely fantastic. They're wizards, truly unique, even in the field of microbiology and the mycobiome, which is the fungal network that lives within our system as well. And candida is a real issue. My wife and I had huge levels of candida albicans and really had to take a long time working to repair our guts. So this stuff is incredibly important. You can find out so much about your gut and more over at guthealth.com. Um, even their online health quiz is absolutely unique from other ones. Uh, simply, they use a wide, the most widely available research. Biome Health's gut assessment gives consumers insights based on analysis of millions of proprietary data points that incorporate microbiome data with clinical data, including diet, exercise, stress, and lifestyle information. The algorithms were created by incorporating the data from Biome's at-home microbiome test, the Biome Gut Test. This is a phenomenal tool that assesses both the bacteria and fungi of an individual's microbiome with additional clinical and lifestyle data. 
These guys are the best in the business by far, and their machine learning is incredible. You can find out so much more over at guttesting.com. That's guttesting.com, and code KKP will offer 20% off for all listeners. And uh, you're going to hear more from them for sure. Guttesting.com, code word KKP at checkout for 20% off everything on their store. We're also brought to you by Silent Mode. Silent Mode is a peak performance company aiming to help 100 million people reduce their resting heart rate by 5%, enabling happier, healthier lives. They believe the combination of music, science, and technology can create a new genre of mental fitness training, which can be practiced at home, at work, or when traveling. How do they do it? By providing access to guided mental fitness workouts delivered through a sensory deprivation device. Their toolkit custom builds a custom mental fitness workout program based on biometric feedback to help you breathe, sleep, nap your way to a better life. It's for connected humans who want to improve peak performance. Silent Mode provides tools and techniques that empower the mind and the body. Finding your balance requires a proactive approach. It doesn't happen on its own. We're here to power the go-getters who understand the importance of mental fitness, people who seek to optimize performance of the mind. Because healthy minds need workouts too, with the right tools and the right path ahead of you, finding balance is simpler than you might think. This stuff is absolutely incredible. I've been using both of these. The Power Mask, which is their sensory deprivation device, is incredible. The audio in it is incredible. And the guided breathwork sessions are some of my all-time favorites. I have no problem gassing up, so I typically don't use their app, uh, Breathonics, to increase cognitive function and awareness. I typically, typically use it to calm the F down, and it works phenomenally. It actually helps me before bed. I've used it before entering ceremonies even. I mean, I really love this product. It's phenomenal. You can get 15% off the power mask and six months free of Breathonic subscription at silentmode.com slash KKP. That's S-I-L-E-N-T-M-O-D-E.com slash KKP. Use the promo code KKP21 upon checkout specifically for my listeners. That is silentmode.com slash KKP. Promo code KKP21. We are also brought to you by C60 Purple Power. Uh, This stuff is my new favorite health hacking tool. C60 Carbon 60 is a super antioxidant that lifts the oxidative burden at the cellular level. It basically acts like a free radical sponge that helps you to fight inflammation, boost immune function, increase energy and mental clarity naturally. My friends at C60 Purple Power have told me that it's going to help me recover faster from my workouts, and it most certainly has. I've been training more in the past two months than I have in the previous 18 months. Remember, all stress equals stress in the body, and if all stress is left chronic, that affects all systems. And I've been a bit stressed out about the outside world, no doubt about it. The more I learn, the more stressful it is, and that's where tools like C60 Purple Power come in handy. And with this, I've been able to work out more than I have in the last 18 months within the last 60 days. It is absolutely incredible. Head on over to c60purplepower.com. That is C60PURPLEPOWER.com and use code KKP for 15% off your first order. Or just click the link below because we got all this stuff in the show notes. Last but not least, we are brought to you by one of my favorite nootropics on the planet, Lucy. Lucy Lucy.co was founded by Caltech scientists who were former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative and researched and developed it for three years. They created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that has three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine and cherry ice flavor. These products can be enjoyed anywhere. 
your flight at work, on the go, or even in the gym. Um, it's phenomenal on flights. You know, there are a lot of people um, who use various forms of tobacco, I do not recommend, find this to be incredibly effective on flights. But you're certainly not going to use any form of tobacco, whether you're using a volcano like I do with Paul Check, while you're in the gym, unless you've got a home gym. And this can be really good. If you're at a public gym and you want to boost in the cognitive function department, which does help, oddly enough, with your body, uh, you know, the, the, the brain being the central governor of the central nervous system, it's really important that you juice up the gears. And nicotine, as I've spoken about, is the best nootropic on the planet. It fits in the same receptors in the brain as acetylcholine, which all nootropics, whether you're talking alpha brain or any of the rest, uh, they're all increasing acetylcholine, you know, and, and of course, you know, my boys at Sovereignty, Purpose Plus, my favorite, um, these stack incredibly well together. So check it out. Go over to lucy.co, that's L-U-C-Y.co, and use code KKP for 20% off everything in the store. That's lucy.co and promo code KKP. And of course, the di- disclaimer here, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Thank you. All right, y'all, without further ado, Uh, my friend and uh, my teacher, Freddie Silva. Well, Freddie, thank you for joining the show. Tell us, tell us what life was like growing up. You, you didn't have a standard uh, education or a standard way of um, growing up in the world. No, how boring. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I I mean, I I was collecting dinosaur eggs when I was uh, very young and uh, lived in a very unusual, almost a Paleolithic environment in Portugal. Uh, uh, there'd be sort of dinosaur tracks going sideways up a hill, uh, not far from the beach where I used to go. Um, and um, it was a very sacred landscape, very unusual place with lots of unusual mythologies. And um, I sort of got involved with the world of advertising and graphic design and photography and uh, rock music when I was growing up uh, in my, into my professional life. Uh, and uh, it just wasn't for me. I mean, you know, I was making a lot of money and being finally miserable, uh, apart from the rock music section, which I absolutely loved. And uh, it was always very organic and creative, full of unusual people who thought differently, you know, kind of like me, I guess. And um, it was uh, one thing that led to another. I mean, I, I was always had this fascination for ancient sacred sites and pyramids and things like that. And I had all these books sitting on my bookshelf, which I never got around to reading, but... Thankfully, I kept getting fired from my my jobs for having a conscience. And I figured (laughs) during those moments of introspection that I would sort of pick up these books and go, you know, this is exactly what I would like to do, but how do you make a living doing it? And, you know, the moment that syncs up with your life purpose, uh, the gods seem to do things on your behalf that just get you to answer your own question. And literally, uh, uh, when I was sitting in Chicago, and uh, we had that sort of big time in 1992 when, you know, the whole of the country basically lost their job, it gave me a chance to rethink, and I got totally immersed into the crop circle phenomenon. I knew exactly what it was when I first saw it on television, and uh, I felt compelled to investigate it. And uh, one thing led to another, and before I knew it, I'd quit my entire life and went on to do crop circle research. Uh, became one of the acknowledged uh, world experts on the subject and wrote my first book, which became an international bestseller. And I never even planned or even dreamed I would be doing that. 
And here we are 20 odd years later, I'm still on tour. I've got six books behind me and uh, basically took the work I did on crop circles and extended it to megalithic sites, ancient temples, ancient systems of knowledge and found out that they're all connected. And uh, it's been a kind of a whirlwind existence ever since discovering the unknown and living in a parallel universe that goes back 10,000 years. And there's never a dull moment, believe me. Yeah, no dull moments at all. Talk about your first experience walking through a crop circle. Um, I've, I've, I've yet to do it, but at the same time, I, I do feel a certain sense of resonance just in viewing them. And I think there's been you know, different theories on why they've been left behind for us and things of that nature, whether it's harmonizing the grid of the Earth's power source itself or you know, connecting to other nature, you know, these other uh, megalithic sites, as you've talked about as well. But the felt resonance of that can be felt even viewing it from afar. So I'm just imagining, I've, I've heard you describe this before, this first experience walking through one. Um, talk us through that for the listener because it is a different experience viewing it on a TV screen versus actually standing in one. Oh, God, believe me, yeah. Um, the first time I, I went back to Wiltshire because I was living in America at the time, uh, I sort of just, I was just driving around the countryside with my uh, then wife and uh, I just remember being transfixed by watching these things from a distance. I, I didn't know how to get access to the fields. You had to get to know certain farmers and things like that because they are on private property. You don't want to damage people's uh, crops. It's their living. Uh, and then once I got into the research, um, I was actually working with the then acknowledged expert on the subject. And um, he took me to see one. And I was actually really disappointed. And I remember telling him, I was like, this is not what I was expecting. And I walked in, and I thought, this is, there's something not quite right here. And, of course, little did I know that they had actually made that one by hand in order to test me. And then mm. uh, they didn't tell me until much, much later. It was just to try and, tell, uh, and to, to test me that I'm doing the right thing and I knew what the hell I was doing. And, um, the, and the guy gets a phone call and says, well, there's another crop circle that just appeared nearby. Do you want to go and see it? And I said, absolutely. I've got nothing better to do in my life. And I remember getting out of the car, and it was about a quarter of a mile away on the side of a hill. It was like being pressed to the side of the car, and uh, like this invisible hand. And I said, this is not like the other one. And the, uh, the guy said, well, what do you mean? He said, I can't explain it, but this, this is the real thing. And the moment you walk in, it's almost like going through a perimeter of electromagnetic field where you get this tingling feeling on your fingers and your entire skin just behaves like it's been peeled back. And you feel like you're in a completely different environment, like you're inside a test tube and someone's looking down the barrel of a, a massive microscope looking at you. Uh, it's as though the, the barrier between you and all other levels of reality inside that space are very, very thin. And that's when uh, the guy said, well, we were just testing you with the first one. This is the real thing. I said, oh, yeah, you can feel the difference. So even from my first moment, I could tell the difference just by being there from what is man-made to what is the real thing. Uh, and it makes all the difference because these things do unusual things to plants, to the soil. Uh, they act uh, very weirdly with passing animals. And so it's always good to observe how they behave. And if they behave really unusually before you see a crop circle appearing, you know there's going to be something that feels good in 24 hours. So there was this wonderful sort of parallel reality that was going on, but at the same time, 
this parallel reality was interacting with ours and giving us mathematical codes and uh, healing codes, which we're still using to this day, by the way, with incredible effects. And also technological information. Uh, we've extracted anti-gravity information, which has been built in three countries, and it's been kept quiet for the time being and waiting for the right political moment. And then it was the fact that it was also linked to all the ancient sacred sites, and that was the big aha, the fact that the ancient sites are all built on the Earth's electromagnetic grid. And the crop circles, the real ones, are on the same grid as well, and one is affecting the other. And suddenly you're watching people all around the world traveling across the world to their local sacred sites and megalithic temples, and as though a big door is open. And I believe it was absolutely true. And part of what the crop circles were doing was to wake up these ancient sites and get people to understand what they were put there. And it's part of a 12,000-year-old story, and I had no idea at the time what I was getting involved into. And... Um, it really is part of the development of, of human society as a whole. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm so fascinated with this. And I think of, uh, you know, a lot of the work that's been done from yourself and Graham Hancock really exposing this, this other narrative that this is not the pinnacle of human existence, that we have had technologically advanced civilizations come before us um, all over the globe. Obviously, you already know this, but just for the listeners all over the globe, there's been tales and stories and uh, writings of a great flood that happened. And now there is evidence, and we've seen this come out, where there was the this meteorite that struck around that time that brought us out of the last ice age into uh, a great flood that went very high and has impacted the entire Earth on a global scale. And it's not just you know Noah's Ark that talks about it. It's, it's indigenous cultures and people from... Uh, multiple different continents all seeing the same story. What you've discovered alongside Graham Hancock with Gobekli Tepe and these other sites is that there are structures that existed tens of thousands of years before us. So talk about that narrative that we were taught as kids, you know, and, and certainly the re religious narrative that the earth is 6,000 years old, grappling with the findings of science today. Yeah, they were having this uh, religious conclave a few centuries ago, arguing uh, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in this room where you get these men dressed in little dresses and little red shoes, uh, which paints a wonderful picture, uh, arguing about which day in August in 4004 BC the Earth was created. Uh, it's astonishing to think this is only a couple of hundred years ago. And uh, most of archaeology and geology back then was really um, based on the fact that the church wanted to validate its position on the creation of the world and to validate the Bible. And it was all absolute nonsense because when the, when the archaeologists began to look at dinosaur bones, well, they were considered to be frauds back then because there's no way those things could possibly exist given the uh, limited time scale that the church had ordered. So working back from this, um, the independent research community, such as myself, have been looking into the ancient traditions of things and looking at basic logic as to why is it when you travel to places like Peru and the uh, enormous temple city of Sacsayhuaman that the best rocks and the biggest rocks and the best masonry is at the bottom of the building and the rubbish that the Inca and the Spanish built is on top. The whole concept is upside down in terms of the logic. We should be progressing, not regressing. And that's the first clue that uh, there was something here before us. 
And all you have to do is get away from Europe and academia because, you know, we're still going into this sort of mindset that somehow, you know, Europeans were the end-all and be-all of civilization. But on my travels, I found that the furthest you get away from Europe, the easier it is to find that the stories are much more cohesive. So I spent a lot of time in the Pacific and in New Zealand in specific, uh, and I found out that if I listen to the people whose ancestors were closer to the events than we are, we get a much more rounded story. And uh, what I've uncovered in the last couple of books is that the stories all overlap and they match. So if our predecessors were not capable of getting around uh, easily around the world and they were very local people, then this undermines the whole story because it means that the stories if they overlap, that means that they were connecting to each other and these people were also experiencing these stories as eyewitness accounts. They're not just myths, they're eyewitness accounts. So the, the, what they describe is the fact that about 12,000 years ago at the end of the Ice Age, there was a parallel civilization here of people that they described as human-like but not quite human. Uh, and they were very comfortable with them. Uh, they were very tall, uh, usually about eight and a half feet tall, but not giants, they were just very tall people. And usually with elongated heads, red uh, hair, green eyes, blonde with blue eyes, and very light skin. And these are the exact descriptions from these people all around the world. And uh, no matter where you go, they talk about them living in secluded places like islands, all of which have now, of course, sunk beneath the rising sea levels. And they said that these people had a complete control of the laws of nature because they understood nature to such a degree that they were able to connect with it, understand it, and using their God-given abilities of intent, they could alter nature and bend it to their will. And that was their technology. It was a natural uh, um, form of nature that allowed them to control the weather or move rocks through the air. So when you look at these stories and read them for what they are, they... It, human hunter-gatherers were very happy to work with these people and to gain knowledge from them. And that's where we ended up with uh, humans discovering civilization all of a sudden, at the same time, around the world in about 8,500 BC. Uh, the gods suddenly um, went away just after the flood. And uh, they also, uh, didn't, not many of them survived either. And they said, well, we're going to give humans the ability to discover animal husbandry and grow crops and mathematics and astrology and uh, leave them to their own devices, let them develop at their own level. And we're going to take a back seat because we want them to realize that they are the gods they've been waiting for. They can do this for themselves. So we kind of owe them a modicum of gratitude for what they gave us uh, because this is something that happened magically all around the world. Yeah, that's got me. That's got me thinking in multiple directions. <laughs> yeah, <I figured> so, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, yeah, these these beings that would show up uh, seven at a time on many different places to teach and to bring civilization to back to the earth, basically to rebuild what was lost in the flood. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's very curious and awe inspiring. I wonder why they left, you know, to leave us to our own devices and see where we're going. You know, it's, it's well understood by indigenous cultures that time is cyclical. And I've, I've heard you speak about this before, that one of the reasons we would have these sites amongst the many for healing properties and things of that nature is the fact that it can draw us into a resonance and a reawakening or a remembering of what we once were. 
And um, if we are to reincarnate many, many, many times over on Earth's playground, then that certainly makes sense. Why not leave something that stands the test of time as an ability for us to tune back into it? Do you feel that now we're at a point um, where maybe it is the end of an epoch or the end of a time period? How much have you looked into um, that type of, or, or maybe studied from the indigenous because you've mentioned the Hopi multiple times and um, other ancient cultures that all seem to point to this time period, you know, including the Maya as, as an end point and a beginning point of a new phase. Oh, every ancient culture has their cyclical calendars and that all of them talk about the rhythms and flows of civilization, which have come and gone many, many, many times. I mean, it's beyond our calculation. Uh, if you just sit back and read this subtly, you realize that they're talking about millions of years. Uh, and they don't even blink an eye when you talk about this. Uh, for them, it's a matter of fact that there's no such thing as linear time or linear experience. It's all part of a big cycle, and it all has its own purpose. So all the world's ancient cultures, all of their calendars, so to speak, and traditions are all coming to a close, and we're now literally between two different cycles. We're at the start of the next one. And, of course, there's huge changes that come with this, just like, uh, you know, the, there's a calm at the beach, there's a big storm, and then there's a calm again. So we're in the middle of the storm right now. And it's imperceptible unless you obviously pay attention to politics and you realize actually there's a lot of turmoil going on. There's a lot of polarity going on, and it's part of this whole thing. And uh, what they were saying was that um, each cycle has its own particular agenda. Uh, and uh, it's imperceptible to us in our 70 or 80 year uh, life period. And uh, what's going on at the moment is that um, there is a kind of a culmination of something that occurred 12,000 years ago with the gods. Um, and by the way, a god was essentially any person that had control over the forces of nature. That's essentially what a god is in their terms. Um, they were saying that uh, after the flood, there was few survivors on both sides. And um, the gods decided that uh, they lost their homelands. There weren't many people left. They couldn't breed with humans successfully for a long period of time without causing huge havoc. And it did cause a lot of problems. And even the Wichita of Oklahoma had this story about the uh, human women who were taken for wives and they gave birth to infants because the gods were much taller and they killed the, uh, the mothers. So that didn't work out too well. So it took him a long time with genetic engineering in order to make this come about, uh, which is where we get the, the concept of the divine bloodline from, which is a whole other story. And um, they wanted basically humans to develop their own ability to grow uh, by themselves, because at the time we were hunter-gatherers, we behaved no worse than animals. We were going around dressed in nothing but our uh, the suit that we came to Earth on, and uh, we, did, we could barely understand how to make fire. And they, the, the gods were saying, well, they can do a lot better than this. There's a lot of potential here. So why don't we give them the accoutrements of, of civilization and steer them in the right direction and let them figure things out for themselves? And it's going to take a long, long time. And looking at what the um, gods built and these megalithic structures, which obviously were designed to stand the test of time, and they have, I mean, otherwise, why use such ridiculously large rocks when a small brick would have done? The point was that they could foresee and they had the ability to foresee into the future that there would be a time when we would lose the plot. Uh, everyone down here on Earth eventually loses the plot. We get um, seduced by all kinds of wonderful things here. 
and we take our eye off the ball. So they left the temples here filled with the instruction of mathematics, of astronomy, um, of the laws of how to alter the human organism using electromagnetic fields in order to change their position here in life. Because one thing that people experience when they go into the temples, if they just happen to be aware, is that there's a certain feel when you cross that doorway. There's a certain um, unspoken vibration, if you like, which is now measurable because of the, uh, the machines that we've built to measure the, uh, the energy. And people leave a little bit different. They don't always understand why. And the point was to get into a, a state of grace where the temple was a mirror image of the perfection of nature. And the idea was that when you walk into the temple, you would become that perfection. You would lose that chaos that resides inside you as a result of interacting with the normal world. And you'd leave much more awake than when you entered. And the idea was to get you, to, even if for a few minutes, to experience another level of reality, uh, that next stage beyond where you feel that you are in control and you can receive really good information. I mean, I can say hand on heart that half of my information comes from sitting in temples and then I have to research it and uh, give it some validation. Uh, otherwise, most people wouldn't believe this. And the information is there. It's just, that's where the legwork comes in. And the idea was to get you to realize your position in the bigger scheme of things amongst humans, along the earth, but also in the universe itself. And when you have access to that kind of information, you are in control of your life, which means that no matter what comes at you, whether it's a flood or meteorites or plagues or whatever, you have a degree of control over the outcome. And that makes all the difference. And that's one of the reasons why they built what they call the mansions of the gods. And even the Egyptians wrote that after the flood, the surviving gods moved to different parts of the world, at specifically chosen locations, they call them, to rebuild the former world of the gods. And it wasn't just for them, it was for everybody. It was for humans as well. And uh, again, it was just to get people connected to the biggest scheme of things so that they could be in charge of their lives. And essentially, this is, these are the teachings that underpin every spiritual society on the, planet, on the face of the earth. Whether you want to call it Zen or Mithraism or Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, these are the foundations of the spiritual principles by which many of us now live. So they did foresee the time when the humans would lose the connection and they built these places on Earth so we could go, we'd know where to go to make that connection whenever we needed to. Yeah, I'm thinking of Rudolf Steiner right now, just, uh, you know, exactly. not quite, well, not quite that, that far back in our history, but. You know, a hundred years ago, speaking of a time where where the archetype or spirit of Ahriman would be born in the 21st century, and uh, you know, all archetypes or spirits having a light side and a shadow side. The shadow side of Ahriman being that we are only flesh and blood. You know, pure scientific materialism that we are drawn away from a, a, any connection we have to source. And it's it's odd, but <laughs> I think we can we can see pretty clearly uh, how many people are leaning that direction. And due to the fallacy of what religion has bastardized around spirituality and a true connection to source, um, people people want something tangible. And, you know, you throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to a lot of what we've been handed down as this is what God is versus what God is not. And I think um, Rudolf Steiner was spot on. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. In fact, I was just um, having a conversation the other day on a, a radio show about this, about uh, how much of the, the, the Western world has been subjugated by a Catholic religion, which is the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on the human race and has nothing nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus Christ, who is essentially was a, an honorable Buddhist when you read his stuff. And um, it's funny, I, I trace the story back as well as other people like uh, the late Lawrence Gardner also did some work on this. And it's interesting how what we've been handed down is so different, so linear, so myopic uh, that it's created problems for the last 2,000 years. And it really began when the Babylonians took all the Hebrews and the Jews as captives to Babylon. And there, they uh, these people got to hear about you know these incredible teachings, but they didn't have access to the temple. You need to have privileged access to understand the context of these teachings. So when these people moved back and uh, created problems in uh, Canaan, and they eventually tried to carve out themselves a piece of land of their own, uh, the Israelites essentially had created a complete false account of what became known as the Old Testament. But the problem is, what they had stolen, according to the Babylonians, uh, and, there's, there was, and they were quite pissed off about this, by the way, um, the Babylonians by their time had also taken the stories from the Sumerians, and they had also put in some distortions of their own to give themselves a sort of a higher status among the people in their area. And then, of course, the Hebrews did it to, the, to them as well. So it's a case of the, the pot calling the kettle black at this point. So if you go back to the original teachings from the Sumerians, by the time they had inherited the stories of the flood and the teachings and the spiritual traditions, they were already 5,000 years old by their time. So God knows what they also had altered. So you've got to keep going back uh, back uh, as much as you can in order to look at the true teachings. And that's where you get the essence of a lot of the spiritual aspects of, say, Zen or the, the early forms of Buddhism or Zoroastrianism, which feel much more real. Even if you don't, don't uh, subscribe to them, they do feel much more real as so they are connected to something much greater. And the core teaching is that you are not separate from a creative force. You are a god in your own right. And Western tradition is the only one that says otherwise, that you are disconnected. You're going to talk to a guy and pay them money and uh, look very solemn and walk in your knees seven times around the statue uh, of a guy nailed to the cross, which, by the way, is a metaphor. It never actually happened, according to every single religious movement in the near east of the time of Jesus. They all said, no, no. Jesus never got nailed to a cross. It's a metaphor. You, you, you're missing the most important part of the story. These are symbols, and there, is, there are at least 134 um, guys who are nailed to a cross on the winter solstice, and they get out three days later, and they are resurrected from the dead. And the whole thing is a symbol. Uh, I, I wrote a whole book on this, uh, which is actually almost humorous when you read this in, in its context. So, yeah, we are suffering from that loss of connection because of what's happened in the last 2,000 years with someone's distorted view of the facts. And, of course, it leads to all kinds of problems. I can only think at this point of uh, the film Brazil by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python. He's actually making fun of these uh, Western concepts where the smallest of errors, in this case, a fly lands in the uh, in the middle of a typewriter and it types in the wrong word and they arrest the wrong guy and it sets up a whole chain reaction of false events. That's essentially what we've been living in for the last 2,000 years. <laughs> yeah, I think that's worth checking out. Um, you know, 
you talk about pyramids and things of that nature, and I've heard you describe mounds as, as similar in many of these um, places, whether they were mound structure or giant megalithic pyramids, they had caves built within it. Like the cave, the cave was the central focus and the pyramid or the mound was the, the thing that held the resonance above it. And you've ever measured um, the subtle energy emitting from mounds. Talk a bit about, these other types of sites that maybe people aren't as familiar with and what was happening in the caves? Oh, every single sacred site upon the face of the earth, regardless of what it looks like, is built at the crossroads of the earth's tillery currents uh, or energy lines, if you have, that's what you want to call them. And they're essentially geomagnetic hotspots. So in the Native American uh, Southwest, for example, uh, we have around Arizona, New Mexico, all these rocks full of petroglyphs. Well, that's exactly the same thing. Uh, they would go there and they would um, tune in to a final level of reality because the laws of physics are ever so slightly different in these locations. And then they would paint or carve the petroglyphs on the rocks to show what they had encountered in, on the other world. Um, so the idea was that uh, the original sacred sites were either sacred springs or caves because they represent the womb. And indeed, uh, not just any cave, but specific caves. And today we can pinpoint the fact that these sacred caves also happen to be the uh, geomagnetic hotspots of the earth. So we're only just now developing the technology to help us understand the, the craziness that our ancestors were doing at these locations. And there was a method to their madness, as it turns out. Well, as we begin to lose the, the plot and we start getting to more materialistic things and we lose that connection to the spirit world, the seers and the sages and the wisdom keepers realize that we need a little bit of help. How do you find these hotspots if you are disconnected from your environment? Oh, I know. We'll build a pyramid or a passage mound or a chamber on top of the original site so people will know where to go. But uh, despite the fact that they're man-made structures, they are built according to the rules of nature. So when you look at these places, uh, let's take the pyramid, for example, the Great Pyramid of Giza. Uh, and people go there, and you, you, I, mean, I watch their faces light up. I mean, I've led three tours to Egypt during COVID, and they've been absolutely amazing. There's been nobody there. Uh, we do take <laughs> risks, but we have great fun. And I watch the expression, and I say, why, do you, why are you behaving the way you are? I said, well, apart from the fact of the, the sheer scale of it, it's just that it looks perfect, even though it's a very simple design. I said, well, that's the whole point because they were able to take this incredible amount of information from nature and hardwire it into a very simple symbol. And, but when you spend years you know, figuring out and taking the pyramids apart, you realize it's full of information about how the Earth works, the measurements of the planet on which we come from, uh, the movements of the stars and so forth. So they're like libraries in stone, and that's what's amazing about them. You can spend an entire li uh, life measuring the stone, the position of things, and the numerical values of things, and you still would only be scratching the surface. And that's what's so clever about these gods, that they were able to do this for us and leave us to ponder about it for weeks and weeks and weeks, and in my case, for years. And there's no end to where this information goes, because when you finally realize how important these places are and what they're doing to you and for you, you take on a different perspective of life, and that's the whole point. Uh, again, it goes back to self-control and, and awareness. Uh, in my case, for example, 
uh, I can go to any sacred site, regardless of what it looks like, with a question. And by the time I've left that uh, building, I've got an answer. And the trick is not to expect anything. If you go there expecting something, it won't happen. That's part of the joke here. Uh, if I just go in and say, well, what is this really about? How does it connect to this, if it connects with this at all? I let it go, go for a walk, and by the time I've left, I'm stripping down a lot of information. Uh, that's how they work. They transfer information to you on a subconscious level. It's a two-way communication. And the idea, again, is for you to implement this information into your life. So when we get to the Middle Ages in Europe, and you have people like Leonardo da Vinci and his incredible drawings of helicopters and things like that, or... Um, uh, Newton and his discovery of gravity. If you read uh, what they wrote about in their notes and their uh, autobiographies, they said that we owe everything to the ancients and their temples. And that was their little nod to us saying, we have actually accessed these places. We've listened, we took notes, and this is what got us to be who we are. So it made people awake to their bigger function here on Earth. No longer just, you know, a, a map, a, you're no longer a piece of, um, uh, meat strapped to a, a, a bone and then going through life through a difficult birth, a horrible life and then death. No, these people were awakened, they were, became enlightened they became aware of their purpose in life and the temples essentially opened them to allow them to see their soul connection to the, this uh, life and allow them to become who they came here to be. That's, I think, is the biggest thing and the biggest draw about ancient temples is to getting you to realize what you came here to do. Uh, and there's no substitute for that because if you can live your life completely aware and awake, when you die, you can, you've got no one else to blame but yourself if you haven't followed through on your own path. You can, you can at least say, you know what, I've achieved something. I was able to do this uh, aware and awake and I've come here to do exactly what I can, uh, what, what I was incarnated to do. So that's the ultimate benefit, I think, of all these places. Yeah, and I'm just thinking of this parallel with with plant medicines. I haven't been to sacred sites. Um, a lot of them are built where plant medicines grow. You know, whether that's in Cusco with a uh, wachuma cactus and things of oh, that yeah. nature. But, but. Um, a lot of my journeys with plant medicines have, have gifted me a lot to what you're speaking to with life's purpose, direction, answers, downloads. And uh, I've certainly feel a calling to go to the caves and to be at the sacred sites for the reasons you speak of, because I, you know, not, not everyone has access to uh, travel and not everyone has access to plant medicines. And uh, I'm always looking for different ways that we can change our tuning fork, the receiver on the dial to open ourselves up to greater levels of awareness so I'm I'm pretty um, I'm pretty I'm very drawn. I will I will make a point within the next five years to make it uh, to anywhere that you recommend. But I'm just thinking about this. Sorry, go ahead. And also, you don't have to. I mean, I mean, I like traveling, uh, and, I'm, and like I said, I take calculated risks. And I, you know, I, I mean, I, I've traveled considerably during COVID, and it's been quite difficult sometimes. But if you can reach your destination without being stuck in quarantine, uh, you're doing quite well. And so far, I'm fine. I think I, my health has never been better. So I might even sell my uh, antibodies to science because obviously these temples are doing me some good if I'm still fine. And I've been very fortunate, unlike many people who have died of this you know, really uh, nasty little virus. Uh, I, I am very fortunate in that respect. And I think it's something to do with what I do at these temples. So there is some truth to this, I believe. It's not, 
easily quantifiable, but I do think that watching the people that have come with me on my tours, and they're all fine as well. So there is a certain insurance uh, to traveling to these places. And in fact, the Egyptians did actually hint that these temples act as a kind of insurance policy for people as well as the planet because of the position where the temples are built. But the thing is, you don't really need to go there. You can, if you believe in your the ability of your own self to be the temple that you are, because we are our own temple, we have everything we need within us. And that's one of the things that uh, Jesus was teaching, by the way. Um, you can actually astral travel during any meditation to a specific place that's calling you on the face of the earth and interact with the temple. Because remember, your body is just a physical vessel that houses your soul. Your soul is who you are. It's not your body, it's your soul. If you allow your soul to travel consciously to any place on the earth, you become part of that temple. So you don't actually physically have to be there. Your soul is already there, and you can extract and gain the same understanding, the same frequency in the temple as as though you were there physically. You don't have to be there in person. And so that's one way of getting around the problem of not being able to get around, if you know what I mean. Uh, you can actually do this without uh, moving. And in fact, the Maya talked about this as well, that the ancestors, the the gods, when they first arrived in Yucatan in 9,600 BC, they have a very specific date for this, which just happens to coincide with the 100 years after the Great Flood, by the way. And they said that these people had the ability to travel without moving. They could see far without moving. Uh, it means that they had developed their own latent ability, like any of us can, to be anywhere they want to be by using the ability to astral travel. And some people use it by meditation or Kriya Yoga or, you know, Ayahuasca as well. Uh, So whatever your tool, the trick is that you can do it uh, without having to physically be anywhere. Well, that gives me gives me something to work towards in my meditation practice for sure. Uh, I've recently read the immortality key and, and found it fascinating as a complete reframe of what, uh, the cult of, as he calls it, the cult of early Christianity actually looked like, and the medicinal practices, you know, the high priestesses were the, of course, broom makers, um, and the evidence that supports that. But something that you've spoken about a lot is this lost art of resurrection. Can you talk about the point of that and and, and really what people were trying to attain in, in these practices? Yeah, I'm glad that they wrote the Immortality Gate Key because it validates everything I wrote five years earlier in The Lost Heart of Resurrection. And uh, we have actually uh, spoken to each other, so actually it validates both our work, I believe. Uh, although he, I can't remember the, uh, the author's name at the, off the top of my head, but uh, I think... Brian, Brian Marusco, yeah. He approaches it from a, a much more scholarly point of view because he wants to be accepted by the academic world, and that's fine. Uh, I do it to a lesser degree because I go more into the spiritual angle but I blend the two, but the whole point of the lost art of resurrection was to demonstrate that there are certain sites and certain places within certain temples that we use for a very unusual practice. And it was to do, and it became known as the um, living resurrection uh, around the time, just before Jesus and the early Gnostic Christians who were actually very interesting people and very different from what Catholicism became, by the way. And this is why they were persecuted and hunted down. And uh, essentially, it was to do with a very ancient system of initiation, which took up to three years to complete. So if you were aware and keen and excited about learning about more about the world rather than just having a difficult life, you were taken by wisdom keepers and you were observed for a year. And you were taught lesser mysteries about the universe. 
And while you were learning these uh, parables and stories and metaphors, they would watch you. Uh, and this applied to women as well as men, by the way. They would watch you to make sure that you were responsible and you could take on a little bit more important information and not sell it to the highest bidder, because this stuff is very dangerous. And so by the second year, you were taught the deeper mysteries of how to do things, how to work with nature, the underlying energy of things. And then the third year, you would actually develop the ability to take poison or certain drugs, which would induce a near-death experience. And this is the high point of initiation, which, by the way, the word means to become conscious. That's what it means. And you were taken to a secret room, a, um, a restricted a chamber or a cave, and uh, you were drugged uh, and poisoned and uh, left for dead, essentially. And this began on the spring equinox, and it ended exactly nine months later on the winter solstice. And I think you know what's coming up. So for three days and three nights, you actually physically left your body and went traveling in the other world. And you would connect to people, to this kind of beings, to knowledge, a universal reference library, whatever it was that you were looking for in the other world. And the idea is that you'd spend a, a time there consciously, as you and I are talking right now, and you would come back uh, to your body three days later, and you would remember everything. So it's not like lucid dreaming or taking ayahuasca. This was an actual physical journey out of body, and a very dangerous one at that. So the idea was that you retrieve information, you bring it back, and you're completely conscious of it. And at that moment, uh, the initiate was taken out of the, uh, the box or sarcophagus or a cave, usually by the priestesses who were called the bees because they were spent three days humming around your body to protect it from, a soul, from any other soul entering your vessel while you were away. And uh, they would take you up to a mound uh, or to the entrance or the exit of the temple to face the equinox sunrise on the spring uh, on the winter solstice and you would be declared risen from the dead because you are no longer dead you're no longer just associated with your physical body you are now alive truly living with your eyes open and that's where the phrase came from and i traced this back as far as i could to the teachings of mithras uh, in the indus valley of india in six and a half thousand bc and i thought that was a pretty old teaching until uh, there was one American writer who taught himself ancient Japanese and actually read one of the uh, prehistoric texts of Japan, which is highly contentious, by the way, because the Japanese don't want to accept that their culture is more than a couple of thousand years old, which is really quite ridiculous. Um, it's much older than that, and, and, and also much more incredible than that. And uh, he said it's interesting that they were uh, back in the, at that time of the flood when you had the gods coming out of the ocean and starting Japanese culture. They created these codes of law by which you could live by. Uh, eventually, it becomes called the Ten Commandments, you know, 8,000 years later. So in 8,000 BC, in Japan, we have the Way of Ise, and it it's 17 books which basically tell you how to live life properly and also how to access the other world and come back to step successfully. So we're talking about an initiation level of uh, this living resurrection, which is now over 10,000 years old, and it's still with us today in certain remote parts of the world, like Guatemala or the Pacific Islands, because there is no lawyer in the world that's going to allow their clients to have an induced near-death experience 
that's really going to send shivers up their spine. Uh, not to mention your insurance company. Uh, they're not going <laughs> to go with that. But uh, lucky people who did travel through the uh, hinterlands of the uh, uh, what we call the uncivilized world, which for me is actually the civilized world, you do bump across with shaman and wisdom keepers who look at you and go, this person really means it. They really want to find something different. So let's take him in uh, into our fold and we'll teach him uh, what what these things are all about. And yes, it's still being practiced in the uh, darkest corners of the world. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm so drawn to that. Any, any, any modicum that can help us... Um awakened a deeper awareness. I've, I've really been drawn to the original vision quest of four days, perhaps not the original, I'm sure there's something before that, but four days, no food, no water uh, at a sacred site is definitely calling to me as well. You wrote a recent book about the Knights Templar. And I, I to be perfectly honest, have heard Paul Check speak about them briefly. I've heard them in, in you know different shows that I've watched on Gaia. And I have not really taken a deep dive into them, but talk about that time period who were the Knights Templar? What were they about? And what were they really trying to do while they were here on Earth? Oh, 90% of what's written about the Templars is absolute nonsense. It has no relationship to reality. Uh, you really got to spend a lot of time with the Templars and look at their early origins and go back 50 years before that to get a sense of what was really going on. Uh, that's why it took me 15 years to write this book, to really get a grip on what was going on. And essentially, to cut this down into a very manageable um, phrase, they were the reincarnation of the Essenes because they behaved just like the Essenes a thousand years later. And um, they wore the same habits. They did the tithing. They had an inner brotherhood and an outer brotherhood. And they essentially were the same people just a thousand years later. Uh, once you get to that point, uh, you're already 90% ahead of any other historian that's looked into the Templars because this inner brotherhood behaved like a, a kind of a ministerial college. They behaved like very spiritual people, and they did very little fighting, if any at all. It was the Crusaders that were doing all the fighting. The Templars were very, very different. And um, I, when I was researching this in Europe, uh, I found a lot of the places where they were doing these secret rituals, which were, again, found in caves, and they were always down at the winter solstice and the spring equinox, and the, the members were declared risen from the dead. And I thought, my God, these people were practicing exactly what we just spoke about a few minutes ago. Um, and that they basically were, were obsessed with Jerusalem because having been part of the Essene culture, they knew where the Essenes had buried all of the scrolls from the Romans on the Temple Mount, and they bid their time. They were very patient about this. You had to wait for the right political moment to get back into Jerusalem. And uh, when these uh, Templars, who were essentially monks, and also many of the members were either Portuguese, but also of the, mem of the order of the, uh, the members of the Order of Sion, which is a very ancient culture, they knew exactly where to go and where to dig, which means they had prior knowledge uh, and prior information. And one of the things that really set me off on this quest was the fact that in 19, uh, sorry, 1120, there's a certain moment where these uh, 11 guys are digging uh, under hot and claustrophobic conditions, uh, having given up all their wealth, by the way, to become poor people, which makes no sense whatsoever. They suddenly stopped digging and they found something of incredible value, which had nothing to do with money, by the way, because they were already wealthy and didn't need to, to uh, find wealth. Um, they suddenly brought these scrolls back to what became Belgium to speak to a cryptographer. And I wondered, 
why would you need a cryptographer to work on scrolls that they found on the Temple Mount? And that was the key to everything, because the scrolls were written in a certain coded um, way that only few people understood how to break the code. And once they found the key to the code, it turned out that these are all the teachings of spirituality and out-of-body experiences and self-development that were being taught for thousands and thousands of years before. Now, you put this into context of the period, this is a time when Europe was barbaric. The church had taken over everything. Uh, they were filling everybody with fear. Unless you go and talk to a member of the church and pay them money, you're going to go to hell. Um, it's a, a culture based on plunder, and the main item on the menu for dinner every other evening was human flesh. I am not kidding you about this. Uh, these are pretty bad, uh, sick times. Uh, so in the middle of all of this come these guys out of the Middle East into Europe, and they start preaching this information to lay people. And, of course, the laborers said, well, wait a minute. If, are you saying that... I, can, I am a god. I am control, in control of my own life. I don't have to talk to an intermediary. And they said, yes. And we'll teach you how to uh, expand your self-awareness to become greater than what you've been told you are. And uh, here's another thing. If you, allow, uh, if you become part of the Templar order and give us what little money you have, and it's totally up to you, uh, we will put that in escrow. Uh, we will tithe 10% to give the money to the next village to bring them up from a level of servitude. We will uh, house the uh, the poor. We will teach your children. We will form hospitals. We'll set up a fund for the aged. In other words, it's a major welfare system that they created. And we'll basically bring up your level of education so you can be self-sufficient. No one will ever tell you what to do. So, of course... Everybody in Europe gave the Templars what little they had. That's how they became extremely rich, because they became a, a vessel by which everybody could raise their level, raise their game in Europe and become self-sufficient and self-empowered. It was like a utopia, and it really worked for about 100 years until, of course, the church figured out what was really going on. And they, of course, uh, they didn't want all this stuff to come out, and they uh, made the Templars look like a bunch of devils, the rest is, you know, the rest is history. So essentially there were this incredible group of illuminated people who wanted to make the rest of Europe and eventually the rest of the world become illuminated as well. Talk about this divine bloodline. You've talked a bit about reincarnation from the Essenes to the Templar. This is the first I had heard of, of a, a sacred bloodline as opposed to the bloodlines we hear David Icke talk about. And of course, you know, feeding into reptilian beings, being able to enter the body and things of that nature. And maybe my audience hasn't heard any of this shit. I, don't, I have no idea. But it's stuff that I'm fascinated by. And when I first heard you speaking about this with Regina Meredith, I was like, oh, that, that makes sense that the flip side of this coin is there. And I think on a <laughs> yes, it does make a lot more sense, believe me. Um, it goes back to the flood and uh, the fact that there was a parallel civilization living alongside hunter gatherers, and these people were considered to be gods, sages, wise people. And uh, they, there was something unusual about them, not just physically, but also in the blood and the ability for, that they had to travel without moving and uh, lift objects through the air and so forth literally was in the blood itself. They were blue-blooded, and they had to intermarry in order to keep this thing going. So after the flood, not many survivors, they had a choice of either inbreeding, which is not going to go very far in the, the physical world, 
or they have to develop the ability to find a way to make their DNA match human DNA and somehow work. And it took them a while, but they actually succeeded. And there's record of this all around the world. And that's where you get the mention of uh, people who are half human, half divine on the thrones of the major cults in Europe. And these people, again, were able to maintain this connection to this divine bloodline of the gods from a long time ago and ruled by Harold Appointment because they were able to show by example how to be better than the average idiot walking around the street, killing people and dragging women by the hair back to their cave and behaving like a barbarian. Uh, this is about the elevation of the human soul. So the pharaohs, for example, were people who were put on the throne because they could be shown to be an example to others and you only deemed to be a great ruler if the rest of the population under your control raised their game uh, to, to where you were. That was the whole aim of all of this. So if, if we go forward a few thousand years now to about 2000, 1000 BC, the priesthood uh, uh, decided that this would be a great idea uh, if they could somehow get in on this game and then try to take it over because it meant that they could be worshiped and they would never ever have to work a day in their lives. And that's where you get the breakdown of the entire society around the earth. You had this false priesthood that took on this concept of the divine bloodline for themselves, and they declared themselves to be the uh, bloodline of the gods. And of course, they weren't. Uh, they just made it up. And uh, from that on, you have Caesars and rulers all around the world who then claim that they too were connected to this divine bloodline without any uh, historical connection whatsoever. And the idea was to fool people into believing that uh, they could worship this guy with the big sword uh, and follow this guy uh, or this woman because they uh, they had heard that these people were connected to Viracocha or these gods and so on. So it was absolute nonsense. And this eventually devolves into the situation that we have today of you know uh, idiots running for president or running uh, you know, countries in Europe or around the world who are they're just basically making things up as they go along and making um, taking people who are gullible to give them the power. So it really goes back to this point, uh, to this very long story where originally there was this connection to this, to these gods who had the ability to do extraordinary things. And uh, it slowly over 10,000 years, this is of course has devolved. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier on, Kyle, about the fact that we are in the middle of ages, we're changing from one age to the other. And you can see how these governments and people in power are uh, lasting less and less and less and the population is beginning to realize, uh, depending on which country you're living in, um, that something's wrong with the system, that these people that we vote for are not who they are at all. And uh, we begin to wake up and realize we're putting the wrong people in power. Uh, so it really comes down to the fact that um, the sense of the divine is corrupted over this 12,000-year period, and we begin to realize that we need a big change. So that's what kind of where we are at the moment. Yeah, I think of that as like the, the you don't always know who the characters are in the battle of good and evil or or even even, you know, from a from the perspective of power. You know, if, if good if good was indicative of uh, power that empowers others and bad was in indicative of power that takes power from others, I could see it just just in that sense of the word that there has been a shift and a struggle amongst certain leaders to prevent others from having a direct connection with source while these ancient teachings and mystery schools were trying to provide direct connection to source. Exactly. 
and that's usually the barometer that we should go for. I mean, if if the greater amount of people benefit and we raise the level of everyone, then obviously that person is a good leader. That person is someone that can be trusted. I mean, one of the last people I remember, I'm I'm living in America now, uh, one of the last people that I remember being an excellent leader was Jimmy Carter, which so few people are aware of. I mean, this guy fell down a bunch of stairs a few, uh, two years ago. He's, what, 95 or something now? And he gets out of bed, uh, and uh, he just goes back to building homes for the poor. Uh, there he is with a hammer, uh, the old-fashioned way, and he's still showing that he, despite having been a president, is out there at 95 making homes for, for the homeless and for the poor. You know, that's someone with character, someone with spiritual integrity. And, uh, you know, those people are rare in this day and age. They really are. Uh, so when you see someone like that who actually walks the talk, that's usually your gut feeling kicks in, and that's when you realize, aha, this is the person that we should be putting in charge. Um, it's very difficult for anyone with any integrity these days to actually have the guts to face up to a system that uh, of bullies and people with so much money that no matter what, uh, uh, they, they, they make up stories of a parallel universe, and people believe this. And I said this years ago, and... I'm the last person that's holding out to, to use a cell phone day in, day out. Uh, I use a cell phone only for extreme emergencies. I still have a landline. And uh, the reason was that I saw people on the streets so taking, giving away their power and their attention to these little black rectangles. And I saw this is going to be really dangerous one day because people will just find these stories coming up on the top of their news feed and they'll accept that as the truth without realizing the context or who wrote the uh, the uh, paragraph in that news feed. And that's where we ended up this concept of fake news, which is essentially is fake in itself. It's a complete repudiation of what is truthful and correct. So we have got to this point where people have become polarized into people who are either awake and realize the con that's been taking place. And the other half, of course, are falling for the biggest fraud of all, which is, what we call fake is actually the truth because we want you to believe what we want you to believe so that we can retain the power and control you through fear. And this is not how it's supposed to be going. And I think part of the teachings of the initiation process was also to help empower you to understand the difference between what is correct and what is incorrect. And they're basic morality tales, they're basic rules of engagement, uh, which go back to the time of the pharaohs, where every morning uh, the pharaoh would look in the mirror and uh, repeat 42 phrases. Uh, they call the utterances of the pharaoh, but anyone had access to this information if they could read. And you have to sit there every morning, look in the mirror, and utter these 42 phrases, like, I have not killed, I have not taken my neighbor's wife, I have not taken a baby from its mother's uh, breast while uh, drinking milk. And these, of course, get uh, shuffled down into the Ten Commandments by the time we get the Christian era. So, again, we're uh, synthesizing highly complex stories into minute fragments and sound bites, which uh, will not do us very good. So the idea is to follow the old traditions and the old teachings because they've got all the answers that we need for today's problems, and they've never really been any different to the problems that even Neanderthals had. Mm. Yeah, we're we're in interesting times for sure. I, I wanted to ask you, and and I'm not I haven't heard you speak about this at all, but just given your knowledge and your your, your knowledge of ancient cultures and, and the the time period that we're in right now, and seeing this giant divide, uh, one thing that I've spoken about before, and, and something that really resonates with me is the the pictograph that the Hopi did, the drawing 
of the, the sphere of the sacred hoop and, you know, the, the, the seven members above the line with their heads removed from their body exiting the sacred hoop or the, or the earth itself. And then the four representative of less of humanity with their heads connected to their body, feet connected to the earth, walking a straight line, ushering the next phase of human consciousness on the earth. What is your take on that, given, given all that you know and everything that you're able to tap into it, as far as what's coming and, and seeing this divide? Oh, it's really to do, the removal of the head is to do with the removal of the ego. And in fact, you find exactly the same thing on the ball courts of uh, Chichen Itza in Yucatan, and it has nothing to do with the gruesome blood sport. Uh, that's something that the, the uh, Christian mysteries made up because they had no idea what was going on. Uh, the Aztecs, too, are to blame because they mistook the old teachings literally, and they thought that they were looking at were pictures of headless people. So they thought, oh, it must be a blood sport where they took off the heads of the, um, the tribe down the road. Let's go and chop their heads off, and then we can appease the gods. Uh, it's absolute mistaking a religious concept for uh, uh, as a literal interpretation of something very spiritual. And the idea was that once you get so attached to your ego and you begin to see things in black and white and in very tangible and physical essences, it means you've lost most of the plot and your connection to the natural world because 99% of what exists in the universe is unseen, but it is felt. And anyone who has the ability to just reach out with what we call today the Force, that's why Star Wars is such an important film, by the way, um, and it's almost like reading an ancient spiritual text but written for a space-age theme, um, these understandings were that once you get connected to your ego and you become attached to your ego, you are blinded by the fact that uh, you're missing out 99% of everything around you. And that's where you go wrong. And it's only the people that are still fully connected. And once you're able to remove your ego, you can cross over to another level of reality and then you walk upright again. You are reconstituted. Um, the Egyptians had a great story about this, which is repeated in many cultures around the world, which is the story of Osiris, who gets chopped up uh, into little pieces by 72 people. Now, you might wonder, why does it take 72 people to chop up one guy? Of course, it's, the story is an allegory. It's supposed to be teaching you something. Uh, and uh, it's to do with the fact that in order to cross into another level of reality, which is much purer and much more cohesive, you have to be chopped up. You have to let go of your old physical self and to walk into the other world just as the pure soul that you are. And when you're there you marry a divine bride. In this case, of course, it's Isis. And at that moment, the, uh, the man or the woman becomes a single individual. Uh, that's what Jesus said, by the way. He said only the single uh, person can walk into the realm of God or the kingdom of God. He, he was talking about the divine marriage of uh, himself with this divine bride. And the divine bride represented the woman, a metaphorical woman, within whom was held the entire wisdom of the laws of nature and the universe. So think about this for a second. You've decapitated your ego. You've crossed into another level of reality. You've gained access to all the information about the universe and yourself, and you've come back onto a new level of existence, upright and completely in control. So essentially that's what the Hopi were describing in this wonderful petroglyph, but it's a teaching that's also echoed through every ancient culture in the, um, around the world. Wow, I'm absolutely blown away. Freddie, it has been incredible having you on this podcast. I want to do it again down the road. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll link to all your books in the show notes and a couple of uh, my favorites from Gaia that you've been in. Uh, what 
what do you have on the horizon? Is there anything that you're writing now or any, any uh, productions coming up that we can take a look at? Oh, COVID has been a wonderful time. Uh, I've actually found out that I had thousands of clips uh, that I've been filming of sacred sites around the world. And uh, I've actually come up with four documentaries in the last six months. So I've been a very busy boy and I've just released a brand new one literally days ago called The Path to Paradise, which actually touches on some of the things that we've discussed today. And it's also based on what I wrote in The Lost Art of Resurrection. And uh, what about The Missing Gods, which connects to the book The Missing Lands to do with the ancient civilization. And there was also one on Scotland, which I am now writing a book about, about the origin of the uh, temple culture in Scotland. And believe me, it's taking a very radical turn from what we were led to believe. And uh, it's getting very interesting. In fact, I'm having to learn dead languages to understand what was taking place in Scotland. But I can say, if you want to understand what was happening in the islands up there, at the far end of the world, you have to understand Sardinia, Malta, the Middle East, and also um, uh, the Anunnaki, uh, who were people who were always given a very dark image on ancient aliens. And I wish they'd stop doing it because it's uh, the, the truth is very, very different from that. So I'm in the middle of big research right now, which of course will evolve copious amounts of whiskey. <laughs> Beautiful. Hey, where, where can we find you? Where we can, can we stay in contact with you? And is Path to Paradise on Gaia or is it on your website? It's just on my website and on Vimeo right now. It's going to take Gaia nine months to put this up on their website. It, um, there's a process that it has to go through and they're, they're a bit short-staffed. But it's on my website at invisibletemple.com. That will keep you busy for a few months. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Freddie. It's been excellent having you. We'll do it again soon. Cheers, Kyle.